Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I got a couple things I think you should uh, try, check out, take part in. The first is a new podcast. It's hosted by Ronan Farrow, Pulitzer Prize winner. The uh, show is called The Catch and Kill Podcast. It's the same name as his book, which has been on every best of the year list imaginable. And uh, on the show, Ronan is talking to uh, the sources, the key people in his investigation of Harvey Weinstein. The uh, conversations are all new, and there's also all of this never-before-heard uh, audio from the investigation itself. Uh, the show is produced by Pineapple Street Studios, which is a uh, podcast company that I work at. So I'm a little biased, but uh, I really think you should listen to it. Another thing I think you should do is uh, couples therapy. You know, only if you need it. But the acclaimed Showtime documentary series, Couples Therapy, you may have seen it. It's looking for couples to participate in the next season. If you are in and around New York and you would like 20 weeks of incredible therapy for free, this is a way uh, to do that. And also, you know, get famous. Go to CouplesTherapyDocumentary.com. It just takes a minute to apply. I'll tell you a little bit more about it later in the show. And here is that show. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, joined by Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hey, you guys. Hello, Aaron. Max, I could not believe when you scheduled this week that we're approaching the time when we need to start working on our uh, best of the year list. <laughs> what know. is it, March? We just did one of these. <laughs> I know. I don't know how <laughs> it's true. It's always, um, it's always a trying but fun experience. But you and I are going to stay up all night, one night this week, and uh, and we'll do the best of list, and then it'll be out, and people will uh, will uh, agree and or disagree with our selections. I'll really look forward to seeing that out, not having done anything on it myself. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> careful listeners must know Evan does not pick those stories. Let's see who's on the show this week. James Verini, repeat guest. The last time he was on the show, I believe he was living in Kenya. Since then, he has actually done a lot of reporting from Iraq, specifically Mosul. Uh, he has a book about the fall of Mosul out there. I'm kind of a sucker uh, for war reporting in general, and it's generally difficult to get these people in our studio in New York City. So I basically have like a standing um, bat signal to James Farini that if he uh, is ever not in a war zone, he should come by uh, our offices. And he did. Oh, man, I'm looking forward to this one. We uh, are brought to you in partnership with people like MailChimp, who make it so easy to keep in touch, even from war zones. All you need is an internet connection uh, to beam your message out to millions of people. Do it with MailChimp. They make it easy. It's cost-effective. And I will say this about MailChimp, because I was just setting up uh, something for a project that I will uh, not talk about yet. But um, pretty much any service... If you look, you can like hook MailChimp in. Like if there's any kind of a email hook, the number one thing you're gonna have available is a MailChimp hook. So future-proof yourself today with a MailChimp newsletter. And now here's Aaron with James Farini. Welcome back, James Farini. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. You just told me you're living in Paris now. Mm. You've changed continents since last time. <laughs> once I didn't once know again. That. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's weird. I think I've sent you several emails like as if you lived in Africa. I, I was like <laughs> I was trying to hit you up, I think, for like African yeah. radio station rec recommendations. <laughs> you did. You did recently ask me for African radio station recommendations. I think last time you were on the show you were living in Nairobi at that time. That's right. What yeah. uh what led to you taking off? 
I went uh, off to Iraq to begin the series of pieces that would lead to this book. And I was offered a fellowship in Paris at the American Library in Paris where they pay you to sit down and write your book. And I took them up on it. And I just stayed. And that was two years ago. So the book is about the fall of Mosul, which at the time the book started, it was unclear. I think the estimate seems to range from about three weeks to never uh, how long it was going to take. The estimates at the beginning of the battle were that a couple of months people were talking about, you know, maybe three months in there. No one was sure. It ended up taking nine months or more. How does someone like you schedule your life around something like that? I think you, I mean, I had the luxury of not having to do anything else. I went for the Times Magazine to begin covering the battle in uh, October of 2016. And at first it was progressing very quickly. And we thought that, in fact, you know, the timeline might be met or even bettered. But then it became clear uh, that this battle was going to take a long time. How long? No one knew or could have guessed. Um, I said to my editor at the New York Times Magazine, I want to I see this out. Um, and we came to a, an agreement whereby I would pay for myself to live in Iraq, in Iraqi Kurdistan, as the case was, and basically report there until I could report no more. Um, and <laughs> that seems like kind of a bum deal for you. <laughs> And he agreed that he would let me spend my own money to go to a war zone. Well, the Times covered everything else. They covered all of the very large expenses Ah, of of having a reporter in Iraq. I was covering my apartment and food and everything else. And they were covering transportation to and from Mosul because you couldn't live in Mosul. You had to live. We had everyone lived in Erbil in Iraqi Kurdistan. And they were covering, you know, the vehicles, all work related expenses and most expensively the security slash medic people, which uh, the Times and other news organizations insist reporters travel with when they're in a conflict zone. Is it common for a reporter to spend an entire nine-month span like this? Like, I, I guess my model, my assumption when I flip open the Times and I read about a battle like this battle is that a reporter has spent a couple weeks, maybe they've done two stints with some time in between like and where you're staying how how many nine monthers are there out there there were a lot of people who were long-termers they were either the bureau chiefs right yeah. of say the times uh like in the case of it was tim Arango at the time or the journal the papers who could afford to have baghdad bureaus or iraq bureaus set up shop then there were a lot of long-termers who were sort of freelance writers doing pickup work I suppose I probably had a singular situation. I can't think of any other journalists who would have been dumb enough to to do what I did. But of course, I don't like I don't have a house or a family um, or really any any overhead, so I could afford to take on a project of this size. And I had long wanted to, you know, I I had been working for magazines for a long time, and I have had stories that have taken you know, years uh, to research, but it's always intermittent. This was a story in which I could immerse myself for nearly a year, which I wanted to do. I suppose I had in the back of my mind the idea I might get a book out of it. When you're not 30 days in, but, you know, over 100 days in, what is the value of the 107th random day? Diminishing returns is what what you're referring to. Well, is it diminishing returns? And and what returns are you still looking for past 100 days? I mean, you know, the end goal in my reporting was the end of the battle. I wanted to see this thing out. Because the Battle of Mosul was the climactic battle of this war against ISIS in Iraq, which had cost the country so much um, and had been going on now for more than two years. And the, what it took to push ISIS out of the country was just tremendous and very impressive. And I felt as though I was, you know, in the midst of history in a sense. I wanted to see that out. Covering any story for that long is probably boring, and certainly covering a war for that long is boring, because war is mostly downtime. War is mostly waiting around, you know, for something to happen. There were particular obstacles in Mosul that prevented my doing as much reporting as I would have liked. The main obstacle being that a couple of months into the battle, the high command uh, and the Iraqi government had got so fed up with journalists foreign and domestic journalists, that they were kicking journalists out 
of Mosul. So that within two months of the battle beginning, it was pretty much the rhythm that I would go in, be able to spend a day or a couple of days with a commander or with some officers or something, and then I'd be kicked out. Some general would notice me or some colonel would notice me or whomever, and I would get kicked out. So I had to keep on going back and getting kicked out of Mosul again and again over the course of months. Can I pause you and ask, yeah. like, what is the Army's primary objection to journalists' presence? I can think of a lot of possible right. objections, but at least in what they're telling you, why would they not want a journalist there? So the Iraqi government and the military seem to generally object to the tenor of the foreign coverage. They seem to be of the belief, as generals often are, that the role of the reporter in a war is to cheer on the troops on the right side of the battle and to decry the bad sportsmanship of the enemy. And I think that the journalists weren't doing that to the satisfaction of the generals. The journalists were also in Mosul. I remark on this in the book. Journalists in Mosul were not uh, putting on the best showing. They were often sort of running around rampantly on the front in neighborhoods, often without protective gear, often in non-protected vehicles, uh, like slipping their military escorts and presenting a real danger to themselves. A bunch of Iraqi journalists did die and a bunch of foreign journalists were shot or hit with shrapnel, um, presenting a danger to themselves and to the troops and to the civilians. So I couldn't entirely blame the Iraqi military when they decided to kick us out en masse. And they really didn't play any favorites. Like, it didn't matter that I was with the New York Times. And they were just as eager to kick out the Iraqi journalists as well. There were also a lot of what we would call human rights abuses going on. There were all manner of Moslawis and foreigners who were being summarily executed. And there were a lot of civilian casualties. And the Iraqi military didn't want that being seen. So once you've been kicked out, do they not have like any idea? I do remember actually after your first appearance in this podcast, you asked us to take down your photograph. I think at the time you were worried about being kidnapped and being able to be identified as a journalist. But even in the case of the Iraqi military, yeah. they didn't eventually get a photograph and go, no, that, that guy's that pesky <laughs> Times journalist who we've kicked out of the club six times. The reason I took down all those photographs of me online or asked for them to be taken down back in 2015, there were a couple of reasons. One was I'd been working a lot in Sudan and I feared, probably wrongly, that I was somehow being tracked by the Sudanese government because I had was repeatedly entering the country illegally. I was also at the time working on a story about the ICC case against Uhuru Kenyatta, the president of Kenya, the president of the country I was living in. And I didn't want them to be able to find out about me any more than they, than they had to online. That story, which ran uh, shortly before I went to Iraq, eventually got me not kicked out of Kenya exactly, but they did not renew my visa. So I couldn't get back into the country. You, you know, kind of buried that lead. You're like, ah, I got a good deal at a library in Paris. <laughs> also, I was kicked out of the country. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that made moving to Paris uh, be better. Okay, so... So the military kind of knows you're there, it's kicking you out, and you're sneaking back in. Yeah. Does that mean that you've never sort of achieved any sort of a permanent permission to do something like that? Like, does anyone have permission to do this kind of thing? Every day was a crapshoot, whether the people at the checkpoint would let you through, whether you had the right papers for that particular day. I had, you know, my, my New York Times press card, and, and I had all of the copies of the documents signed by the right officials showing that the New York Times could enter Mosul, but that doesn't mean that you can enter. That it's, it's up to the whims of whomever you pass at the checkpoint, who might be Kurdish Peshmerga, they might be Iraqi um, intelligence, they might be Iraqi special forces, they might be Hashid Shabi, the Shia militia, they might be whomever. So what are you looking for when you're out and about there? Like what... I've heard a pretty good amount of reporting on ISIS itself. Mm. I'd say this book is actually probably the most extensive reporting I've seen on the Iraqi army that was fighting ISIS right. in Mosul. But right. 
for you, like, where are you focusing mm. your beam of attention on a day-by-day basis? So I was lucky enough at the beginning of the operations within the city itself for two things to happen. One was uh, the first embed I did with the Iraqi special forces, as opposed to the Kurdish forces who had fought the first phase of the battle. The first embed I did with the Iraqi special forces, I met this company and the guys were great and um, really interesting subjects. So I spent the next like seven months repeatedly trying to get back with them with almost no success. I would go into Mosul basically trying to find this particular company and would get hooked up with another company or get waylaid by some general who said, no, you can't be with them, but come with me or whomever else. So can I ask dumb details also? Like, can you ask for someone's phone number in that situation? No, absolutely. Well, everyone had phones. Yeah, everyone had phones. Like, can't you just like WhatsApp? Like, hey, when are you guys going out today? Oh, yeah, (laughs) we would certainly try. Eventually, all the lower down people just stopped responding to me. Yeah, because they're like we're they knew they were not supposed to be hanging out with journalists and they weren't going to risk their jobs to allow me to continue to report with them. It was basically sort of, I would just go in and, and by luck of the draw, I would, I would happen to find commanders who were more amenable to helping me, including one guy, uh, Major Hassan, who's the main character of the last third of the book, roughly. I had first met or seen him during the first real day of fighting in the city itself. He had been shot in the leg, and I was reporting at a um, like a triage station on the eastern outskirts of the city, and Major Hassan was dragged in by his soldiers and put on a stretcher, or a gurney, uh, so that his leg could be patched up because he just got shot in the back of the leg. And one of the New York Times security slash medic guys helped work on him, helped patch him up. So we... Uh, Months later, we found him and he loved us because we're like, we're the guys who were there and the medic had helped patch him up. So he allowed the New York Times to hang out with him and he, you know, defied the orders of his generals and allowed us to embed with him multiple times. The other thing that happened towards the beginning of the battle was I met a family who, uh, as you know, comprised the main characters in the sort of civilian element of the book, Abu Omar and his brother Abu Fahad. And I met them as they were fleeing Mosul and as they moved into a refugee camp, the Hazar camp in Kurdistan. And I began, uh, whenever I was uh, in and out of Mosul or I just didn't have any reporting to do one day, I would go to the refugee camp to hang out with them and talk with them. They both had kids and grandkids and they were they came from this old Moslawi family, uh, middle to lower class Sunni family who'd been in Mosul for generations. They knew so much about the history of the city. And their family story, you know, told the story of the fall of Iraq. These Both these guys had been in Saddam's army. You know, they'd grown up under the Ba'athist regime. They'd both, uh, their wives had both been killed during the American occupation. They both, as it turned out, as you learn in the book, had sons who were seduced by ISIS. So their family story was uh, this really valuable microcosm of the larger story of Iraq and the American era in Iraq and the rise of ISIS. And I knew that the more time I spent with them, the more truthful they would be with me and the more they would tell me about the secrets of their family and the more they would tell me about how they really felt about all this. And I knew that that was going to have to take place over the course of months for me to get the full story. And I'm really glad I stuck around because as you learn in the book, I won't give it away, there's some surprises about their families that come out. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put James and Aaron on hold for just a second. I want to tell you about our sponsor this week. Uh, it's Couples Therapy. Couples Therapy is a documentary series. It runs on Showtime. And if you haven't seen it, it's pretty incredible. It's like uh, nothing I've ever seen on television before. It's 20 weeks following a couple through real therapy. There's nothing salacious. There's nothing exploitative. It's not scripted. It doesn't feel like reality TV at all. It's just honest. It's honest, real couples going through therapy with this therapist named Dr. Orner who has been doing this for like 25 years. The show's gripping. It's a little unsettling at times. It will make you uh, feel genuine things. So that's one thing. If you have not uh, seen the show, Couples Therapy, it's on Showtime, you should watch it. But also, Couples Therapy is looking for couples, actual real couples, to be on the next season 
of the show. You have to live in and around New York to do this, but all you have to do is go to CouplesTherapyDocumentary.com to apply. It takes a minute. They'll get back to you. But you get 20 weeks of free therapy with Dr. Orna, and you get to be on this incredible show. And again, the show is uh, its honest. It's not exploitative. It's also good like genuinely good. The New York Times called it raw and delicious and said the power here is the reality of it all. And it works for the participants too. Uh, Elaine and Deshaun, they were a couple on season one and they said, Dr. Orna saved our lives, our marriage, definitely. If participating in something like that appeals, if you uh, would like to do the work, as they say, with your partner, go to CouplesTherapyDocumentary.com. Again, that's CouplesTherapyDocumentary.com documentary.com. The link is in the show notes. It takes just a minute to apply. And uh, if you're a good uh, fit, they'll get back to you. Thanks to Couples Therapy for sponsoring the show. Let's get back to Aaron and James. And when they're, when you're meeting with them in the camp, I think it's a camp with like a Kurdish guard staff. It's a, it's a Kurdish run camp. It was, right. in, it was in Kurdistan yeah. and it was run by the Kurds, not by the UN. Are you thinking every time you leave, well, that might be the last time I see these guys? Because they might get killed yeah, or, or moved or yeah. that camp's not going to exist anymore. Yeah. No, I mean, I knew the camp would be there, but people were being hauled away all the time, yeah. having been accused of being jihadis or or they would find somewhere to stay that wasn't in the camp. So yeah, it wouldn't have surprised me in the least uh, if that had happened. And in fact, eventually it did happen. One day I arrived and it turned out that uh, Abu Omar's son, the camp authorities had found out that he'd been in ISIS and they dragged him away right in front of me. So okay, this whole period you're reporting on this guy whose son is in ISIS, which it appears is like something that would get you kicked out of the camp if it was widely known. Does that mean you're basically holding source secrets that could potentially mean people well, die? Well, I didn't, I didn't learn about it until everyone else ah, did. I didn't, yeah. lear- I didn't learn about it. Um, well, there are a number of layers of complication, the first of which is all of these uh, Moslawis coming to live in the camp, they weren't all Sunni Arabs. Some were uh, Shabak, some were Kurds, some were even Christians. But the Sunni Arabs um, who came to live in the camp, as far as the camp authorities were concerned, they were all jihadis. Anyone who had decided to stay in Mosul under the ISIS regime must be a jihadi in some, by some definition or another. There, that's an exaggeration, but there was some amount of truth to that in that if you were a Maslawi and you were living there under ISIS, you had no choice but to cooperate with ISIS on some level. Maybe you wanted to keep your job in the government. Maybe you, um, you know, wanted to buy food in a market uh, run by ISIS. Maybe your uh, son needed a job or whatever it might be. Everyone was forced to be complicit with ISIS on one level or another. And the gradations of allegiance and loyalty and whatever it may be, pride or disgust in ISIS were infinite. There were all manner of different permutations. And everyone knew that there were people who had worked very closely with ISIS, who had probably even been fighters, who were also living in the camp. So everyone at the same time was suspicious of one another and, and you know, potentially embarrassed of themselves. So when the camp authorities finally came to drag off Omar, I can't say I was hugely surprised. I'd always suspected that he was more involved than he and his father had led on to me. But it was certainly a big to-do. And, you know, from then on, I'm sure Abu Omar's life in the camp was more difficult. But they were able to move move back to Mosul not that long after that. You have all of these different people you're talking to who have, as you described, this huge variety of different relationships to ISIS during the ISIS rule, from people who are literally fighters to people who were tortured, to people who were sympathizers, to people who were conscripted into service. Mm. And it it seems like in the book, like everyone is always trying to spin their case Mm. to their present day advantage slash survival. Right. Particularly with like uh, pieces for the Times Magazine, like is there fact checking at all? Like how do you, how do you, how can you possibly believe a story someone tells you about 
what happened to them in Mosul during the time of ISIS? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you there's no way to fact check that, right? The only the only thing the fact checkers can do is I record all of my conversations. I do audio recordings of all my conversations and and all of my reporting. Whenever I'm reporting in any way, I've got an audio recorder on. And I would record everything. I would have a translator interpreter whom I was working with on the spot. And then I'd go back to Erbil and I had a better translator whom I'd sit down with and translate things very closely. The best the fact checkers could do and the best I can do is talk to the translators and make sure that I got everything right. There's no way for us to know how much truth or lies Abu Omar say is telling me. But there were definitely a lot of lies. I mean, no, there's no question that a lot of what he said was untruthful or covering up the truth for a number of reasons. First of all, his son was involved in ISIS. And Abu Omar was very open about the fact that he had supported ISIS when it first came into Mosul. So if you've been with ISIS or fought with ISIS as Omar was, well, automatically you're, you might get killed for that. Even if you're just openly admitting to supporting ISIS, as Abu Omar and his brother Abu Fahad openly admitted to me, you're, you're inviting scorn and abuse, right? You're inviting retribution when you move back to Mosul or go somewhere else in Iraq. So I had to believe, you know, I had to, well, first I had to take them at their word. I had no choice. I had to believe a lot of what they were telling me was the truth. If they would admit to me so freely that they had supported ISIS, at least initially. But I also knew that there was much they were withholding from me or changing in order to protect themselves. There's not much you can do about that, right? I got lucky, if that's the word, in that I was able to watch in real time as the truth about their families came out, independent of what they told me, as the truth about their son's involvement came out. So Abu Omar... His son was nabbed in the camp when I was there by the Kurdish authorities, who'd been informed by his sister that he'd been in ISIS after he attacked Abu Omar with a rock. In the case of Abu Fahad, Abu Fahad's son, Loy, had been much higher up in ISIS, had been with them for years. And we learned of the fate of Abu Fahad's son when he received a video on Facebook from someone that showed his son having been captured by the the Iraqi federal police and then executed. There's a video of him being questioned by a federal policeman. He'd been caught. He was scrawny. He was emaciated. His head had been shaved by the police. And there's a video of him being interrogated briefly. And then there's a cut and you see his corpse on the ground. That's how Abu Fahad learned that his son had been killed. I was there for all of that, you know, and there's no way that you could hide that from me, I suppose. Abu Fahad was nice enough to show me the video. I guess he he didn't have to show me it. Who's shooting those? Like, where is all this media coming from in Iraq? And even especially I'm curious, like with the cut, like, you know, the the fact that it's been produced, edited, like where is that coming that from? Was, so that was one of the fascinating, fascinating things about this war that hasn't been written about nearly enough. The fact that this was the first smartphone war. This is like this the number one topic I'm interested in. Yeah, no, let's, there's, ta- let's, there's let's a, get into it. I, this is a really interesting there's topic. There's a thing, I know this is a joke, but I it still resonates in my mind mm. for some reason. It's an Onion headline. Um, 2040 dad can't get enough of Iraq war documentaries. <laughs> And it always sort of sets my brain reeling because I think about right. like how much just raw first-person media right? there is for their Isn't Iraq it war. astonishing? It's, yeah. it's not just, you know, 10 times as much as the Vietnam War. It's, it's exponential. It's hundreds of thousands of times more. At least in terms of the sort of the perspectives we get on it. You know, for sheer hours yes. of film, probably World War II compares, there's no way to measure. But for number of devices and perspectives yeah nothing compared this was the first smartphone war everyone had a smartphone all the soldiers the jihadis the civilians they were all taking pictures and filming all the time and there's a another level that's deeper which is that it's not just video these are communications devices like we're gonna have chat transcripts of a lot of what was going on within isis yeah are sitting on some weird whatsapp server somewhere right. i know it's all like super encrypted and like and a lot of, of it's some gone of it was the stuff that uh expires within a, you know, yeah like yeah. Uh, some of it's going to be gone yeah but just based on the way that we store digital information right now right 
there's a lot of SMSs of photographs yeah. and screen grabs. And, and you can be certain that they will be used in prosecutions if any major federal prosecutions are brought against ISIS figures. They're not being used in the Iraqi courts, as far as I know. But yeah, you're absolutely right. The Everyone had cameras all the time, and, the ca- and cameras played an integral part, um, not just in the documentation of the fighting, but the entire sort of aesthetic ethos of the fighting the most important object a you know a peshmerga or um an iraqi special forces soldier had was his rifle the second most important object he had was his phone not his helmet or his flag jacket they didn't go in for that much but his phone so they were constantly shooting and filming they were constantly sharing stills and videos with each other on whatever it was whatsapp or telegram I don't think they were using Instagram much, but certainly on Facebook. And at first I was a kind of disdainful of it. And I thought, you know, this is just like the rest of the world. Everyone's so sick of these journalists and jihadis on Instagram. <laughs> well, I just I thought it was like the rest of the world where we, we can't tear ourselves away from our phones out of pure like prurience and laziness and addictive collective addiction. Right. But I became convinced after a while that there was something more going on with the process of the Iraqis, including the jihadis, filming and photographing this war on their phones. And I think it had something to do with them personally and collectively processing this experience. Even in Iraq, which has you know been through a lot of wars in the last two generations, a lot of war, I should say, in the last gen- two generations, even in that society, mass violence, is something that the human mind can't just take in, right? It's too outsized, it's too extreme, it's too absurd for you just to sort of look at and process. I got to write about it, which was nice. But for those who don't get to write about it, they needed another way of processing it. And I think constantly documenting it on their phones and sharing the images and discussing it over text messages and over Facebook was a way to collectively process it. Whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But I think it was, uh, I don't think it was merely, you know, phone addiction. In both your reporting and your colleague, um, Rukmini Kalamachi, the thing I'm struck with is how often poetry and poetic images are necessary to capture, like, what life under ISIS right. was like. It, yeah. it, it's so far outside of the realm of normal experience right. that, um, you almost it almost makes sense that people are videoing it because I would like start videoing it yeah, too yeah. if something this otherworldly was happening on Earth. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, there are a few things in there. I mean, the first thing is that uh, I think life in the Islamic State was incredibly boring. Yeah. You know, these all these snuff films and all this propaganda that they put out that was incredibly successful in recruiting people from other parts of the world. That was no more a reflection of life in the Islamic State than a movie is a reflection of our life. But so much of the success of the Islamic State and so much of what we just think of when we think of the Islamic State was, as you point out, virtual and figurative and even artistic, right? Mm -hmm. So many of the young, quote-unquote, fighters who made the Islamic State famous and brought in other recruits were were useless as fighters. What they were useful as was online storytellers, young men and women talking about their, you know, the call to jihad and their going and going to the battlefields. And in the battlefields, most of these people, if they ever picked up a gun, were just cannon fodder, right? But the narrative uh, that so many people bought into and the if you take the Islamic State's, you know, snuff films and other visual propaganda, the like the aesthetic that they bought into was, you know, of a, an action movie, a religious action movie. And in that sense, their propaganda was unbeatable. So, I mean, this book is coming pretty close on the heels of the events in this book. How how long is the separation? Not, not close as I would like. But yeah, yeah, they, you know, it takes it's a while. It's been about two years now. Two years, okay. Yeah, yeah. And thinking about like the overall arc of your reporting, like when did you start thinking about turning this into a 
a narrative that has a, a beginning and an end mm. and, and feels like it goes somewhere. Mm. Um, how do you fit something that's so fresh into any kind of a format like that? Mm. My answer to that question was to fit it in, not to narrow um, the focus, but to widen the focus. So it was my great luck, if that's the word, that this battle happened to be taking place in Mosul, which is one of the oldest cities in the world. Mosul encompasses what used to be called Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire in the first, around about the first millennium BC. And it was the Assyrian Empire that gave us holy war in the sense that we think of it, this idea of war and combat being a way to expand the sacred realm into the profane, an idea that the Assyrians really perfected in the ancient world, and that is the guiding impetus of jihad, violent jihad anyway, as well. So I got to tell the story of this battle and of this war within the larger context of the history of warfare in northern Mesopotamia in Iraq, which is the cradle of Western culture. So I was able to bring what is, you know, fairly recent reportage into a much larger historical context, which I hope makes the fresher stuff, gives context to the fresher stuff, but also lends the entire story a certain timelessness, if I can say that. It, Were you like an art, like an archaeology major or something? Because you also did that Atavist story, which is also yeah about the the antiquities, um, Middle Eastern archaeology seems like an interest field for you. It, it is, and I no, I did not study it, but I am definitely interested in history, as you know, and yeah. and in archaeology because I'm interested in understanding the much larger context of these conflicts. With this book, I just, because it, this battle was taking place in a city in which holy war has been practiced and perfected for so many millennia, I got to think about the story from another, the perspective of another broader question, which is, why do people go to war at all? Why do people go to war to begin with? Why do people kill each other? Was the broader question I got to ask with this book by expanding the articles into a book. But the archaeology is, is particularly important in this context because one of, the way, one of the ways we know about how the Assyrian Empire waged war is not from their cuneiform inscriptions, although we have a lot of those, but it's from their artwork. It's from the famous Assyrian bas-reliefs, which are the huge carved stone tablets in which Ashurbanipal and Sennacherib and the rest of the great Assyrian kings depicted their battles, or at least how they would want you to believe their battles went down, with all manner of mutilation and dismemberment and beheading and torture and enslavement. The Assyrian reliefs are astonishing even today. They're shocking even today. If you go into the British Museum or the Louvre to look at the Assyrian artwork, it's astonishing and shocking, and what it brings to mind, for me at least, very resonantly and immediately, is ISIS propaganda. ISIS was um, very keen on depicting and broadcasting its sadism, and people, of course, will say, well, that, that had never been done before. I mean, the, you know, the, the extent of the sadism was unheard of. Certainly, they were more sadistic than Al-Qaeda ever was, but they were no more sadistic than the Assyrians were, who ruled the same area 3,000 years before. But I will say, to your point about archaeology, I have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark in my life probably 40 times. I actually pulled myself back from an Indiana Jones no, comment no, earlier. I no. was like, you know, it's like kind of like archaeology, but like in an Indiana Jonesian sense of archaeology. I, I've seen that movie so many... when I, That movie came out when I guess I was four years old, and I became obsessed with it immediately. And I would insist on someone in my life, my mother or a cousin or a babysitter, taking me to the movie theater every weekend when I was around five in order to see Raiders of the Lost Ark. That was back in the days when if a movie did really well, it would stay in the theaters for like a year or more, right? Definitely. And I was obsessed with that film as a child. And I'm not being glib when I say that I think it may have as much to do with my interests and what I do for a living than any book I've read or any class I took or even any story I've written. Of course, Raiders of the Lost Ark is not a especially accurate depiction of the profession of archaeology, <laughs> but what it does capture, I would argue very well, is the thrill you get when 
suddenly the archaeology, the artifacts you're looking at, you come to see the historical connection between an object that's a thousand or three thousand years old and what's happening right now. And I had an extremely Jonesian Raiders of the Lost Ark moment in Mosul, and it comprises the last section of the book, the epilogue of the book. Um, one day, I was with these archaeologists, British and Iraqi archaeologists, and a UN team, and I accompanied them into this, what was a, had been a mosque before it was destroyed by ISIS, and what before that was a series of temples over the years, and was reputed to be the tomb of Jonah. This is supposedly where the Hebrew prophet Jonah, who famously got swallowed by the whale because he refused to preach in Nineveh, and God punished him by submerging him. This supposedly was where Jonah had been buried, and they even claimed to have the bones of the Leviathan who swallowed up Jonah. Isis had taken this shrine, uh, Nab Yunus it was called, Isis had taken it over, eventually destroyed it, but before destroying it, they had dug beneath it, dug their famous tunnels that they dug throughout every city they took over beneath it in order to store weapons that appeared and also just hide out. Once that portion of East Mosul had been cleared, I accompanied these archaeologists and UN people down into the tunnels below Nab Yunus. And the tunnels went much lower than anyone had thought. And we're walking in them and the tunnel's getting narrower and narrower and sort of like we're losing light by the moment. Some people turn back, they're getting too claustrophobic. At a certain point, we're, we have to move by flashlight and torch. And suddenly we come into what is a room. It's no longer, we're no longer in a little passageway or tunnel. We're in actually a room. And the archaeologists shined their flashlight onto the walls on either side of us. But they weren't walls. What they were were Assyrian statues. They were the lamasu, the winged bowls that the Syrians are famous for. You know, these 10-foot or 15-foot high winged bowls and lions. We were in this room that, aside from a handful of jihadis and Iraqi soldiers, no one had seen in centuries, in centuries, between these two Assyrian lamasu that were at least 2,500 years old, possibly quite a bit more. And it was one of those moments where what you may experience once in your life or never, when suddenly the stuff you read about in books or the objects you look at in a museum are directly connected to your present and you feel the hem of history brushing past your face. It was absolutely breathtaking and I felt um, like Harrison Ford. In framing the book in that way, comparing the ISIS reign to the Assyrian, did you... You know, particularly in in the sense that a lot of the ISIS fighters you encounter in the book are actually Europeans or from all over the yeah. place. Like those sort of connections between the ancient and the present world. Like, what do you feel like? How, how do you feel like that worked? Well, right. I mean, and yeah. like, and what were what were the ways that you had to make it work as a piece of writing? Right. Well, working in Iraq and working in the Middle East as a journalist or as a researcher or whatever else, you have to avoid the minefield of cliché, right? And right. one of the clichés, perhaps the most hackneyed shop work cliché, is that there has always been war in, in this part of the world and that this is just a continuation of how it's always been. Well, there's always been war in every part of the world. You know, yeah. there's always been war everywhere in yeah. Europe. and in, War, torture, death, yeah. religious it's not, fanaticism. It's not particularly the Middle East. We've just taken on this idea in the West that the Middle East is particularly troubled because, and in particular the Levant, because it's the cradle of the three great monotheisms. And I'm, I'm sure there's some truth to that. The presence of, you know, three religions simultaneously at loggerheads, maybe it does produce more violence. But there's at, also a bit of like a recency bias there, right? And that we happen to have like lived in this century. Yes, right. Certain, certain centuries. Right. The, uh, the, the Russia would be the most bloody place in or, the yeah, world. Or right? Europe. Or, or Europe. Or, right. Or, or if you were living in the United States, uh, you know, pre 17th century, the Native American wars between the tribes. It just happens to be the case that in the second half of the 20th century, for most of the Ottoman Empire, you know, things were relatively static and peaceful across the Muslim world. 
the last time there'd really been a big upheaval in the Muslim world, um, aside from internal dynastic conflicts, you know, the rise and fall of Muslim empires was the Crusades. So you, I think you have to constantly be on guard against that cliche when you're working there. But at the same time, so how, how do you be on guard against this cliche yes. of this just being a continuation of history, but then also telling the history of warfare in this place, right? Yes. And I think that there is something notable, just so it doesn't sound like I'm criticizing this. Yeah. It's not like this place is just anywhere. It is one of the oldest places yes. in the world yeah. in which the artwork and um, archaeological runes yeah. are as concentrated as they are at almost any site on earth other than maybe Jerusalem. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, this is Mesopotamia is where we find the first signs of of organized agriculture, where the, we find the first signs of monumental art of of if not cities, then major walled cities. It's where we find the first great cities in Western civilization. So by telling the story there, I got to, I, I suppose I got a bit of a pass, right? Because I could just say, um, this is the culture that gave us culture. So by pointing out that war has been going on here for a long time, it's another way of saying that war has been going on everywhere for a long time. I know I do I do challenge the lazy notion that Iraq has always been defined by war in the story. Interestingly or ironically, I didn't meet many Iraqis who would challenge that notion. You know, that this was a common characterization not just of westerners but also Ara Iraqis will say, "Well, we've always had war here." Whether it's the Assyrians or the Parthians or the Medes or the Ottomans uh, or the Persians or the Sunni versus the Shia or the Ab Abbasids, you know, there's always been conflict here. I suppose that's right. They get to say it. I don't necessarily get to say it, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, it's a little like how uh, someone says in the book, like that most Iraqis um, favor Trump as president and yeah. their justification is that like a belligerent nostalgic person is who you expect to be the president right. of the United States. Yeah. There's this assumption that the world will continue being some version of what it's always been. That yeah. You get rid of Saddam and you get yeah. more Saddams, you know, that not that history is cyclical, but that history is, I guess, cynical in that kind of a way. And, and that power corrupts and that leaders will be abusive. I mean, the, um, so two things on that. The first thing is that you're absolutely right. So many Iraqi, Iraqi men, let's say, and Iraqi soldiers in particular I met before Trump's election professed, claimed to be big Trump supporters. Their reasoning being that Trump would uh, attack the country's whom all of the Iraqi soldiers believed were supporting ISIS, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states and Turkey and whomever else. I mean, the, you know, it runs the gamut. It, it was a you know world conspiracy. Of course, when Trump came into office and decided there were five mu predominantly Muslim countries from which the U.S. would no longer receive immigrants, including Iraq, then their opinions about Trump changed very quickly. But that didn't change the fact that they all believed the American government was supporting ISIS, you know, almost to a person among the Iraqi soldiers I got to know. They all believed the United States was not just backing them, not just backing the Iraqi troops and funding them and arming them, but also backing ISIS. And when I asked them why this would be, how this could be, the answer usually was, well, that's what a great power does. A great power is manipulative and entirely cynical in that sense. It doesn't just bet on one side in the war. It creates the war and controls both sides. They had this conception of American, of American power being second only to God's and America as being essentially omniscient and omnipotent. And it always made for very stimulating, fascinating, and very embarrassing conversations for me. Because they not only did they think I was capable of anything I, I liked because I happened to be, you know, an American, they also had, you know, very conflicted, complex notions about America for obvious and unassailable reasons. Many Iraqis dislike America, if not Americans. But many, many as well, often the same people also really respect America and Americans, even love American Americans in ways. And these conflicting sentiments would always come out in these conversations, you know, 
it wasn't long before, as an American, I learned from Iraqi friends that America was both the largest force for good in the world and the largest force for evil, somehow simultaneously. What, um, where do you go from here? What, what do you still want to do out there in the world? So a lot of what I've wanted to write about in years past, since I left the United States in 2012, I've mostly written about conflict and political violence and religious violence and this kind of thing. And a lot of the ideas and questions I wanted to explore, I find are being played out more than anywhere else in the world right now in here in the United States. You know, all of the sort of all of the precursors and presentiments to conflict that I've seen elsewhere, I see accumulating here. I'm I'm not trying to say that we're about to. Uh, this is, this is dis- I don't I'm not sure I like where this is going. <laughs> I'm not I'm not saying we're about to descend into a civil war. Although I think you could make a sound argument that we already are in a sort of civil war, considering how many people are shot to death here every weekend. But so you're gonna like try and go link up with the right militia before everything goes wrong? No, that story's been done. No, I'm I've come back to the U.S. not to live, but rather to write. And so lately, I've been. So I just did a story about the persistence of um, lost cause sentiment in the South and talking about the question of why does the Civil War and particularly the Confederacy still define so much thought in the South? Why, why in so much of the South does it feel like the Civil War only ended five years ago still? And the, you encounter a lot of the same sort of grievous thinking and shame that you do in more immediately post-conflict societies. And now I'm in the midst of reporting um, a story on the Arizona border about migrant deaths. Maybe it's just because I'm an American who's lived abroad for seven years, but I think America may be the most interesting place to be reporting right now, if that's not too silly a thing to say. Thank you so much for this interview. My pleasure. It was great to be back. Hey, uh, thanks for listening to the Long Form Podcast. I feel like uh, we don't say that enough. Thank you. Thanks to James Verini for coming in. Thanks to my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, our intern, Marina Clementi. Thank you so much to the sponsors who make this show available to you every week, free of charge, pit writers, and, of course, MailChimp. I got a great email from someone uh, this week who was uh, thinking about going to an MFA program, asking me about the PIT program. Got questions? Send, send them on my way. All right, we'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.